What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain max lugavere is a man on a mission much like myself to help change the way that we think about food and the way that we think about healthcare. He is the New York Times bestselling author of Genius Foods. He's got another book in the works as well, and it was great to sit down and talk shop with Max. Max. Hey. What's going on, man? Chilling, man. It's good to be here and to finally get to to co-create some content with you. You know, we I agree. Um we've got a lot of mutual friends. I'm a big fan of the show. So Thank you, brother. Yeah. Yeah. And we got introduced originally by our publisher, right? Wasn't, yeah. Wasn't Karen the first one to uh to make that yeah. make that intro? We're like we're label mates. Is that the term? We uh <laughs> it's kinda like Eskimo brothers, but in a, way, yeah. in a much less sexual way. Well, I mean, God, that the the edit the writing process, the editing process, it's like an intimate you feel like you're tearing apart like <laughs> it's true. fibers, you know. <laughs> it's true. To put a book out. I remember I was I was talking with Ryan Holiday when I was finished the first draft of the book. And, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, we've probably got to smooth some things out and, uh, you know, get it all tight. And he's like, smooth things out. We're talking about a skin graft here, bro. Like, <laughs> ain't no smoothing anything out after the first draft. This is going to be fucking an evisceration. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's I mean, the irony is that we both talk about health, obviously, and wellness. I mean, the, writing a book is probably one of the least healthy things to do because yeah. you're sitting, you know, or standing. I mean, but you can be sedentary while you're standing, obviously. And uh, just the amount of stress and time sedentary and, you know, it's, it's a lot. It takes a toll. I mean, I, was, I would spend a right, 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 circle, circle, like a mad person just thinking, <laughs> walking, and then right, 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 circle, eat yeah. food, yeah. drink caffeine, you know, have tobacco, right, 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 shit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, like the, the weirdest lifestyle when you're in it. And I had to go all the way in. Like, the people who can, like, write two hours a day and finish a book like i don't know that's that's like a leprechaun to me like i don't know who how that person exists yeah Cause it takes me two hours to even get my tone and get where i was back in the book it's like going into a cave dive yeah you know i gotta get back to depth 100 percent, and it's draining and it's you know i find myself spending hours sometimes on just like one sentence or even a paragraph <laughs> days even i mean i you know i've um like had to like give up on trying to finesse you know certain paragraphs in uh in my book and then i've had to sort of come back with fresh eyes because you just get burnt yeah. out you know like your brain yeah. you only have so much cognitive capacity to um to focus on the same thing before you lose objectivity you know you just like yeah it's it actually is probably an altered state of consciousness that you go into you know it's like sort of flow but then i feel like you reach a a point where 
it's not optimal performance anymore. It's just like you and the yeah. ego and the self-criticism and it's hard. Writing is difficult and you do it in isolation. So. It's, it's a weird form of flow because sometimes it can flow, but there's also the watcher that's always available. And like one of the key elements of like a true flow state is the watcher goes away. Hmm. But like the watcher still seems to stay present when you're writing because you're like having to keep things in line. There isn't like doesn't necessarily always feel like radical freedom yeah especially in a in a book like the books that we write i mean lots of citations lots of research lots of like it's different than like free writing a journal entry or my newsletter sometimes i can just fucking let those rip even poetry occasionally will come out yeah very flowy but like a a 400 citation (laughs) research heavily researched book you're like nope yeah <laughs> that's not gonna be flow man it's exactly. gonna be a fucking a little bit of flow intermixed with a lot of grind i know yeah i mean there's like constraints i forget who it was that said it but you know you you want to try as much as you can to write drunk and you know drunk can mean whatever you know whatever substance or or state of mind you need to be in to achieve that uh sort of ego dissolve um but then editing you know is best on sober i think because that's where you go over it and you're like did what i said just make sense yeah um does it does it pass like scientific muster because you know i mean the thing that i worry about when writing is people can take any sentence you know which is actually commonly done in the media today and it's one of the reasons why everybody is so sensitive they take they can take a sentence out of context and you want to make sure that everything that you're writing is like holds up to snuff you know and that you're not saying anything ridiculous because yeah because they'll pick that one little piece out of any uh, out of your whole argument and then they'll blow that up and then you'll (laughs) die by this one thing that you said terrifying it is it is (laughs) and and probably with you and your process i mean there was probably foods that you had some colloquial wisdom about that you thought were like oh yeah this is a good one i'm gonna write about this in genius foods and then you go to the research and you're like damn that food wasn't as good as i thought it was and then conversely some other ones because i was learning shit like that when i was writing my book all the time yeah so i i mean nobody knows this uh you know you're the you're like i think the first person but i'm now in the process of finishing up my second book so genius foods when i wrote genius foods i had been obsessing over the content in that book for about four years prior to writing it so i mean a lot of the content in genius foods I knew like the back of my hand. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. stuff that I'd been regurgitating and talking about and lecturing about. And uh, I was working on a documentary, am working on a documentary on the topic. So it was all very familiar content. And um, obviously, you know, a lot was sort of left out of Genius Foods in regard to lifestyle. I sort of consider it to be a nutrition Bible, right? Um, you know, a care manual for the human brain. But my current uh, work is more sort of lifestyle. And, you know, that is a whole new research process for me because it's like uncovering all the things that are also important when it comes to the mind body connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's a lot of work, you know, it's, it's reading research and cross referencing and interviewing people. And, but it's amazing. Like, I'm just, I'm so humbled and grateful that I get to do what I do. Like you get to do what you do. And we're, um, we're in an amazing space where we've been able to, I don't know, just be perennially curious and find a, a, uh, a, a feedback loop and a, re- a, a reward system that allows us to do what we love for a living it's amazing yeah. 
Well, your book isn't that much of a secret because I went to look at Genius Foods and they also are already promoting Genius Life on, on Amazon. <laughs> so it's out there. Yeah. It's man. fucking out there. It's so out there. I saw it with the 2020 release date and everything. So, yeah. So that's out there in the world. So if you want a super early pre-order, I yeah. think you can get in on that. Get out there. The Genius Life. The Genius Life. But you had a you had a really important family reason that drove you into Genius Foods in the first place right like that was like one of the driving factors having to do with your mother yeah i mean actually i was just talk, talking to ryan before we got started i was like almost about to cry thinking about it um i lost my mom six months ago and uh the reason why i do what i do and why i wrote genius foods and why i'm writing my next book is because i lost somebody who was very important to me not just very important but the most important person in my life my mom and about eight years ago, she uh, began to show the earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. And she was very young. She was 58 at the time. And I had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative disease. You know, like most people I think are familiar with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it's the most common neurodegenerative condition. And many people kind of assume that it's an old person's disease. You know, it's, I don't think it's uncommon to have a grandparent with the condition. Um, but when my mom, you know, initially started to show these changes that caught me and my entire family off guard, we couldn't chalk it up to aging because my mom was not old. She was blonde haired, you know, she had all the pigment in her hair. She was very youthful. Um, and she also had uh, gait changes, meaning the, the way that she moved um, and walked seemed, mm. to, seemed to, you know, take on subtle changes. And me and you know at first my family we went to different neurology departments with her um starting in new york city but ultimately when we couldn't find answers in one hospital we broadened out the search and it led to me going with my mom to the cleveland clinic and to johns hopkins and um ultimately what i experienced in every instance with my mom in trying to find answers trying to understand why my mom was showing these these strange symptoms uh, i've come to call diagnose and adios and that's because the tools that mainstream, you know, Western medicine has to treat a neurological condition as complex as dementia um, are very limited. And so what would, what would often happen, you know, would be a physician would prescribe some, you know, unpronounceable new drug to my mom and ultimately send us on our way. In none of those instances was diet or lifestyle broached. Right. Um, and as somebody who's always been passionate about health and nutrition and science, um, when my mom was, in, was first diagnosed with a, with a neurodegenerative condition at the Cleveland Clinic, after the initial trauma subsided and, you know, I had a panic attack, I was, uh, you know, the fear and the helplessness that I was feeling for my mom, um, I basically kind of rolled up my sleeves and went to work digging into the literature. And I had an, uh, an ability that I think few people in my shoes in going through that with a family member had, and that was I had media credentials. So I started as a journalist. You know, I, I had no sort of academic background in science. I was, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I had worked for a news and information TV network for six years, a really sort of um, lauded one. It was one uh, co-founded by Al Gore, and, you know, we covered really serious topics. And when my mom got sick, I basically kind of exploited all the skills that I had gleaned at that TV network to try to reach out to scientists and researchers around the globe to try to get up close and personal with the research. Because, I mean, just on my initial perusal of PubMed, 
you know, what I what I began to read in the literature was a, was a stark contrast to the kind of bleak desperation that I was experiencing in those doctor's offices. Yeah, yeah. And so I just became, I became like obsessed, you know. My mom, I, was, I was watching my mom have more and more trouble with daily chores, um, just moving around the house. Uh, and it was, tr- it was just horrible to see. And um, one of the most shocking things that I, that I discovered is that the most common form of dementia, which again is Alzheimer's disease, begins in the brain decades before the first symptom. And that shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody listening because when we look at, you know, all of the kinds of chronic non-communicable diseases that are now burdening society, cancer, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, none of these conditions bubble up overnight. And similarly with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia um, or, you know, uh, neurodegenerative conditions, when you show up to the neurologist's office, I mean, that's probably a decades-long disease process Mm. that manifests by the time you walk through your doctor's uh, door. And so that to me became a really strong, um, it was like a call to action, you know, because I, I'm, I knew that I myself, and I'm a pretty well-read person, I knew nothing about dementia or Alzheimer's disease when I first started. And I certainly didn't know that, that the window, that there's such a long window in which we get to, in a way, influence our cognitive destiny. And so I took it upon myself to, to, read and research and speak to these scientists and begin putting out information to help my fellow peer, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's really what it all became about for me is helping people. And one of the most amazing things. So, I mean, like, you know, I've created all this content, you know, genius foods, but probably the most, um, the most incredible thing about it is that I've actually been able to influence research and partake in, um, studies, uh, as well as lecture healthcare professionals. So I've lectured as a, you know, in um, continuing med- medical education. Um, I've been able to talk at very prestigious academic institutions like the New York Academy of Sciences and all that stuff. And it's, you know, kind of unbelievable that I've been able to do this. But on the other hand, it's not that unbelievable when you consider that most uh, medical doctors get an afternoon of nutrition training. So there's like this huge knowledge gap. And I don't know, I just think where the brain is concerned, um, we should be doing a lot more and we can be doing a lot more to protecting our brains. Um, and I don't think that, I don't think that that's gonna, I'm going you know, a little bit of a tangent, but I think that we've suffered as a society because we, we like to outsource, you know, various aspects of our lives, you know, mm-hmm. financially, we love to outsource our finances to our bankers and financial literacy is a lost, you know, it's a, it's, it's something that's been lost on millennials. Now, thanks to food delivery apps, we can get our food, you know, we can go to restaurants. Nobody knows how to cook in our generation, or few people do. And health is just one more type of literacy that I think we love to just like outsource to our, you know, our doctors, our nutritionists, our registered dietitians. And I don't think or that's the smart. one random person with a six pack that exactly pretends to know, <laughs> pretends to know stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Or like the celebrity influencer, right? Yeah. Like and and her fit tea. Um so yeah, so I mean, like I just I I think like it's kind of a, 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 it sounds like a crazy idea, but I think that healthcare is really something that um, begins with you. You know, it's something that like you're practicing healthcare when you're pushing your shopping cart, you know, around the perimeter of the supermarket and you're avoiding the aisles, which is where all the packaged processed foods lie in wait, tempting you, right? You're, 
it's healthcare when you're debating with yourself whether or not you want to get off your butt and go to the gym after the you know the crazy day that you'd you had had um that's what it is because when we get you know by the time we show up in the doctor's office it's sick care yeah and um and you know again like i don't think that i don't think that medicine mainstream medicine is set up to really treat effectively the kinds of conditions that we're now seeing just like in overwhelming amounts well i think this is the this is the sign this is the bellwether that's showing us like hey something is wrong in our system and you know unfortunately the way that human beings work and in the individual and the collective oftentimes we need things to get a little fucked up before we realize like oh we better do something yeah like i even even think to on a totally different subject even environmental issues right like some people are kind of getting fired up but it's not quite bad enough here in the u.s for people to care enough yeah you know what i mean like we can show some straws fucking up some sea life and like a few things that are happening that you know kind of get the people who are particularly motivated to do something but like unfortunately it's probably going to have to get worse and i think we're already at that point in the healthcare system where it is that bad yeah with the conditions are bad enough where now it's like okay we got to take a fresh look at this paradigm because the people we love like people like your mother people like we all have these people in our lives that are being affected you know dramatically so and that it could have been prevented by diet, lifestyle, a lot of these things most of the time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I love the term bellwether that you used. I, you know, I consider my mom sort of the canary in the coal mine for the Western diet and lifestyle. Again, I had no prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative condition. And upon deeper inquiry, you know, we did, you know, some 23andMe work. But ultimately, most people that um, that will develop dementia, they don't have what are called determinant genes. They have genes that influence one's susceptibility, but it's really about the way that the environment interacts with your genes, right? Genes are not destiny, but they do help determine what the standard American diet and lifestyle will do to you. Yeah. So it's um, I think that's perhaps frightening, but it's also very empowering. And um, and that's really where I think you know it's up to us, each and every one of us, like. Yeah medicine is great i was pre-med in college i have you know uh, uh utmost reverence for people that make it through medical school and that come out on the other side and are out there trying to help you know treat patients and help them you know come off their drugs and 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 you know attain healthier diets and lifestyles but you know medicine was really remarkable back when like the disco- when they discovered you know when scientists discovered penicillin right and one pill could basically save your life and help avert pathogenic disease from knocking you from taking you out. But today we're experiencing different kinds of conditions that are wrought by decades of eating poorly and being sedentary and not effectively managing our stress and not sleeping well. And we show up after doing all that to ourselves to a doctor's office and we expect them to undo the decades of damage that we've done to ourselves. Yeah, no look if you got chlamydia, go to your doctor. Yeah. That's great. They right. got a great fix for that. Right. You know, like you don't need to go to your supermarket to fix your chlamydia. Right. Go to your doctor. Yeah. But if you're talking about something that's like important, yeah. you know, like maybe let's take a more holistic view of yeah. the human organism, right? Like it's not, and I think that is an important point. Like we're not saying that there's no purpose for Western medicine. Of course there is. Of course there is. You know, and it plays a nice, it plays its role nicely. But when you become so wildly dependent upon that, and then the fear mechanisms that are at play that you're even afraid to stray from that standard course of action, 
you know, because if your doctor doesn't say it, then you're afraid that if you don't follow your doctor's orders, like they're a magic genie, something bad's going to happen, right? It's just empowering people to have information and understanding that can help influence the decisions that they're making. It's something like Travis Christofferson is doing as well when he's talking about restricted ketogenic diets, both in conjunction with chemotherapy and independent of chemotherapy, treating like over 90% of cancers, and it's now becoming adopted. But guess what? Most of these oncologists aren't even looking at that research. The research is fairly new, even if they are pairing it with chemotherapy. Like, they're not recommending a ketogenic diet to go along with it, even though the efficacy rates go way up. It's just, we have to understand that it's fallible. These The people are people. And if they're ingrained in pattern and been doing the same thing for a long time, they're not necessarily pouring over the journals. They're not necessarily purveyors of the highest mental flexibility and willingness to admit when they're wrong and something they haven't been doing something that they could have been doing like they're people people have egos people have time constraints people have all kinds of stuff so like empowering everybody to have that information i think is fucking vital yeah 100 percent. i mean cancer is tricky right like there's different types of cancers different genes um you know certain cancers might be uh, amenable to a ketogenic diet other cancers might not so it's just you know i think we need to support the science and the research but we also need to empower ourselves when it comes to you know living in a way that uh at least at least cuts our risk you know and especially sure. when doing so is safe and it takes the power away from like the I don't know, like the the Monsantos of the world, you know, which not that I'm a conspiracy theorist or anything like that. But um, at the end of the day, like these corporations like don't have your back. So, I mean, that's why, why I'm always willing, even if the science isn't fully there yet, to defer to the more natural, yeah. holistic approach. Well, the risk reward is way in your favor because there's no risk. Yeah. It's all reward. Yeah. Oh, OK. You want to try a ketogenic diet for a couple of weeks? Well, the reward could be really high. Mm-hmm. what's the risk yeah nothing metabolic health is your risk right. <laughs> like, like right. what are you like what are you worried about here 100 I mean, so it's it's that's a it's a cool way to look at things whereas if you're taking a antidepressant or you're taking some other drugs like suicidality homicidality these are fucking side effects yeah. of some ssris and some other different drugs the side effect homicidality yeah. is a side effect of cha- of fucking chantix which helps you quit smoking cigarettes like that's an unacceptable side effect yeah i'm sorry 100 percent. and they shouldn't even be considered side effects they're effects you know yeah. when they're inconvenient they're called side effects but i mean they're just as much effects as the purported benefits of of those drugs and um you know my own experience with medicine with my mom is that you know Doctors are very quick in in cases of dementia to prescribe, you know, pharmaceutical treatments for them, but they're not very efficacious. Um, you know, obviously certain drugs are great, um, you know, and, I, and I, I'm very uh, sensitive to the fact that some people are on drugs, you know, different pharmaceuticals, not by choice, um, and some can help certain people, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't place any stigma on them. But um, again, I just think it's really um, expecting a lot to to think that a single pill is going to come out and and undo the decades of of you know siphoning the standard american diet and and being sedentary it's just uh it's a tall order and i don't think that there's any monotherapy that can contend with the kinds of insults that we're faced with on a day you know day-to-day basis in my first book i call it uh the hunger games essentially 
where you know the modern brain is basically being assaulted from every conceivable angle whether it's the ultra packaged processed junk foods or the industrial additives um, included in those processed foods uh, i've recently become really kind of interested in endocrine disrupting chemicals in the environment um, everything from plasticizing compounds to heavy metals to flame retardants i mean you name it um to the fact that you know we flame retardants in our food so our food yes. doesn't catch fire yeah <laughs> yeah it's um it's crazy i mean these compounds are massive environmental toxins they end up in our streams they bioaccumulate wow um they're used in uh, pesticides, herbicides, things like that. Um, and so, what are the results of this endocrine disruption? That, so, so, what are people? What are people experiencing? Yeah. So, basically, like your endocrine system is the is the network of hormones in your body that guide everything from how you feel to your behavior to development. Um, and you can think of insulin, which is something that we all know of, which tends to respond to carbohydrates in our diet. Uh, but there's growth hormone, there's testosterone, there's estrogen, there's ghrelin, which controls our hunger signals. Um, and they're involved in pretty much everything. Um, so endocrine disrupting chemicals are dangerous because they can essentially mimic these hormones in the body. And there's this raging debate about whether or not the levels of endocrine disrupting chemicals that we are exposed to are having an impact. But what makes them unusual is that Unlike most toxins where the dose makes the poison, the tricky thing about endocrine disrupting chemicals is that they can have what's called a non-monotonic dose response. So take any toxic chemical or any chemical for that matter, and at increasing doses becomes increasingly toxic, right? Mm -hmm. At a high enough dose, even water can kill you, right? Um, but generally when it comes to compounds like arsenic or you know any other type of poison, um, it's assumed that at a high enough dose, it's going to be harmful, but at a dose below that, maybe your body's able to contend with it in some way. And certainly many, uh, there are many compounds found in our produce that are toxic, but actually affect us on a positive, in a positive way because they serve as hormetic stressors to the body. Sure. Um, the problem with, uh, with endocrine disrupting chemicals is that their toxicity curve, instead of being linear, can be more U-shaped. And that's what's dangerous about them. So what that implies is that they might have a dose, uh, an effect at a certain dose. And then below that, they might go quiet for a little bit, whereas at a very low dose might actually begin to affect the way the hormones in your body work. Hmm. And so that's called non-monotonicity. And because they have this unusual, first of all, toxicologists didn't think like, didn't think that a, a toxicity curve like that was possible up until recently. And there's sure. still debate about it. But that's one of the reasons why um, these plastic chemicals uh, like BPA, bisphenol A, or phthalates, which are found in everything from plastics to fragrances to um, you know our clothing, basically have been able to subvert um, political and even scientific scrutiny because just finding the dose at which they become biologically active is so uh, so tricky. And also, they become active at different. They're, they're more potently active at different times in one's life. So, for example, if you're developing, you might have a much more pronounced uh, response to these chemicals, whereas if you're an adult, it may be different. And not only that, but these chemicals are, are ubiquitous now in the environment, right? So they're affecting animals. It's just... Uh, and how do, you devise, how do you devise a study for that, right? Because you're talking about years of exposure, and you would have to isolate 
placebo group that didn't have any exposure to that and how fucking hard would you have to police them not to get influenced by some of these chemicals that are somewhat ubiquitous in the normal food supply it would be a very difficult clinical study to do so you have to look at these things more in the aggregate and kind of look at different ways to to do it rather than the classic scientific model Mm -hmm. that we become accustomed to just because the to devise that study structure would be really, really onerous to try and figure out. Well, you, you, you could not study them in humans, but I will tell you that the Environmental Working Group recently published a study where they found that in uh, umbilical cord blood, there were up to th- about 300 industrial chemicals found that shouldn't be there. You know, so I'm not chemophobic, like I'm not afraid of, of chemicals that, you know, that are difficult to pronounce, but these were chemicals that are related to plastic and the burning of garbage and things like that. So they're just, they're everywhere. And ethically, I don't think that these chemicals can really be tested on humans. So um, we're all just part of this unwitting grand experiment. And, you know, I think the the fact that they've become so increasingly ubiquitous is one of the reasons why, I mean, we see rates of cancers increasing. I mean, so most of these compounds mimic the hormone estrogen. They're called xenoestrogens. And BPA is a fantastic example of that. BPA was actually originally identified as being a xenoestrogen when researchers were looking for a pharmaceutical that they or a synthetic compound that they could use to treat uh, female problems like problems with um, menopause and mm-hmm. um, PMS and things like that. And so it's been known for decades that BPA mimics the hormone est- estrogen. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's tricky. Um, but oh, I lost my train of thought, but it was, uh, yeah, it's just pro- it's just it's just crazy. Oh, so yes, so so cancers that are related to the hormone estrogen, right? Mm. So today, a woman's risk of developing breast cancer, a woman's lifetime risk is about one in six. Fifty years ago, it was one in twenty. So the odds are increasing, and it's just like you know, cancers are are rampant. A lot of them are obesity related, but even obesity, there was a really interesting study and I'm, I forget the journal that it came out in, but it was very recent where they found that a person today to, to reach, to maintain the same weight as a person 50 years ago would have to consume fewer calories or work out more. So, I mean, we have all these compounds that are like affecting our hormone systems and, um, and yeah, there's no concrete answers, but it's definitely worrying, you know? So I, I yeah. hope that we can find a way of studying all this stuff. Um, but generally, like, in lieu of, of that sort of research, um, I've definitely made it uh, a point in my life to avoid plastic, um, especially when I'm storing my food or cooking my food. You know, you want to keep your food away from plastic. Um, use glass. Uh, you want to buy furniture if you have the choice without flame-retardant chemicals in it. Flame retardant chemicals in our furniture. So, I mean, this is like what's crazy. And flame retardants are also commonly found in children's clothing, which is, again, very dangerous. But these chemicals were added to our furniture because smoking in the household used to be a major thing where somebody would be hanging out on a couch and their cigarette would fall out of their hands, you know, were they to pass out and it would send homes up in flames and, and, you know, thousands of lives were lost. And so rather than find a way to deal with that from the tobacco side, from the from the cigarette side, they put pressure on the furniture industry to cover their furniture in, you know, these endocrine disrupting chemicals, and so and mattresses are a big one for that. I think that's mattresses. been a huge rise of yeah. you know mattresses that are more natural now that have kind of come onto the market. And I talk about a lot of these anti nutrients in my book too, and some of them are are like really fucking nefariously mind boggling. Like so, 
like Velveeta type cheese, like yellow cheese. Well, okay. it combines like yellow number six with sodium benzoate. And that's shown in clinical research to cause ADHD, like hyperactivity in, in kids, right? Like, so like you're making kids foods that cause ADD and you're wondering why that's on the rise. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's just all this stuff when you start to look in and those are even approved. They know they're putting that shit in there. Yeah. And then there's the stuff that they don't know that they're putting in there because it's being polluted through the streams in the air and the clothes that are you know the absorption rates we're talking about like we were talking about this before the podcast i don't even know why we we're talking about it but talking about scrotums being highly absorbable yeah for <laughs> for different transdermal things so you put on you know you put on your kids underwear your kids diapers right like i don't know what the fuck diapers are made out of. i don't have kids but if i did yeah i'd start looking into that shit because there's probably some bad plastics and some fucking flame retardants in those diapers and you're yeah. putting them straight on your kids fucking taint yeah and they're probably absorbing some diaper shit it's insane well not the shit that's (laughs) that's normal but the the diaper stuff yeah you know what i mean like there's stuff all over like we got to just be aware and then take those equal opposing countermeasures to eliminate those things and then also start adding in some really good shit stuff that improves your detoxification pathways i mean i'm sure this has to be one of the cornerstones i thought you had one of the coolest terms and it was nutritional psychiatry yeah right like that has to be one of the cornerstones not only just okay let's eliminate some of the bad stuff but let's start like adding in some of the good stuff yeah 100 percent. i mean you know eating a, vet, a diet that's high in produce and provides ample antioxidants and minerals actually elbows out in the digestive tract room uh for the absorption of heavy metals um also gives your body the stimulus for its own detox compounds like glutathione and and also stimulates the production of those compounds um, which, you know, helps your body detox, benzene, acreolin, all, you know, all these kinds of environmental pollutants. Um, it's, a uh, yeah. So eating a healthy diet, you know, getting, getting ample antioxidants and especially fat soluble antioxidants. So my passion is brain health. Um, and you know, fat soluble antioxidants are of particular relevance to the brain because the brain is made of fat and it's not just made of any type of fat. It's made of a, a fat that is highly prone to a form of damage called oxidative stress. So you take the fact that 25% of your metabolism is being uh, harnessed to create energy in a container the size of a grapefruit, and that there's all this preponderance of delicate polyunsaturated fats like DHA fat, arachidonic acid. These are all you know, very prone to this, uh, this oxidative process. You eat compounds like vitamin E, um, carotenoids like lutein and zeaxanthin. They help your brain basically defend itself. Um, so you know, these are critical. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's super interesting, you know, like the fact that that there's all these compounds in the environment. We're being affected from every every possible way. I'm, I promote the consumption of organic food. Not that organic food is perfect, um, in any way. You know, organic food is not devoid of pesticides. Uh, so I like to be very, you know, um, uh, I like to tell it how it is. Um, but I still think it's the best chance that we have. And often whenever I make posts about like the benefits of organic food, I get what I call evidence Nazis, like commenting on Instagram that are like, you know, we don't have the evidence that uh, organic food is any safer or healthier. And so those same people would comment when it comes to plastic compounds that, you know, we don't have the evidence that these um, compounds are, are unsafe, you know, for example. But my argument to people that are, that are skeptical is where's the evidence that they're safe? You know, that's mm-hmm. why I always take the perspective that we should that the the less time a product or a supplement or a compound has been, you know, exposed to human beings, the more the burden is the more the burden 
the higher burden of proof is placed, in my opinion, on those on those compounds that they need to be proved safe. You know, so for me, it's it's they're guilty until innocent, until proven yeah. innocent. Yeah, no, that makes sense. All right, so what are some things people listening to this? What are some like real tactical things that people can do? You know, obviously they can get your book, read it, get the full gamut. But if you had to like hone down to a couple different practices that um, concern foods and things yeah. that they can do with their diet, like what would you recommend? Well, I think the key is to to focus on nutrient density, um, and in particular, you know what's good for the body is going to be good for the brain, especially the cardiovascular system. So, you know, I'm a big fan of dark leafy greens. Um, they're rich in carotenoids, again, that protect your skin, eyes, and brain from oxidative stress. Uh, research out of Rush University found that people who consume a big bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger on cognitive tests. So that's a, a rule that I lay out for myself um, to just eat a big salad every single day. So I've been talking with Max about all of the different foods that we can utilize to help upregulate our performance and health. And we've been talking a lot about our immune health, but there's other elements of performance that foods can help with. And if you've read my book, one of those things is nitric oxide production. That's our blood flow. That's the ability to deliver blood, not only to our muscles, but to our sex organs. And there's some great foods for that. Beets, pumpkin seeds, dark chocolate, Swiss chard, arugula. Some of these are the great foods that help with nitric oxide production. But if you want to take it even farther, you can go down a supplement path. And we've created what is, in my mind, the very best nitric oxide enhancing supplement. We called it Total NO. It includes the fermented beets and also the amino acids that can help upregulate your nitric oxide production as well. So whether you want to crush it in the gym or crush it in the bedroom or wherever you want that increased circulation and blood flow, the Total NO is the jam. So go to onit.com slash Aubrey, save yourself 10%, even though this product is new as shit, and get you some. It's fucking rad. It's something that you got to have on your shelf because it's dope. Trust me. It's one of my favorite products. So onit.com slash Aubrey, Total NO. So what do, what do you think about the oxalic acid kind of issues that have that have come up from yeah. things like kale and Swiss chard and spinach and things yeah. like that? I mean, I just don't I think it's again the dose makes the poison, right. you know. I don't I think that if you're eating a large salad every day, you're at no risk. Um, you know, there's always these case studies that emerge like there was one published uh, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine where a lady in China was consuming 2 kilograms of raw bok choy every single day. And, you know, with cruciferous vegetables, you can sort of outcompete the entry of iodine into the thyroid and you can basically grow a goiter. Um, you can become hypothyroid for that reason. And so I think it's, you know, you can consume, I mean, in my view, there's, you know, all these people in the carnivore community now that I'm sure would love to, would love to argue with me, but I think you can consume too much meat and saturated fat. You could also consume, you know, too many vegetables. I think it's all about balance with the caveat that, you know, I'm not a big fan of this whole like everything in moderation idea. I think when it comes to foods like grass-fed beef, wild fatty fish, you know, salmon in particular, pasture-raised eggs, um, and cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, nuts, seeds, uh, things like that, I think you really want to sort of have them all, you know, mm. in your in your diet. Um, you know, because when we 
barbecue beef, for example, grass-fed beef, I would consider a superfood, but we also generate potentially harmful compounds when we grill beef, right? So there's advanced glycation end products, heterocyclic amines that we create, um, other potentially carcinogenic compounds, but those become less of an issue when you have plants in your diet. Yeah. So it's really all about um, incorporating both in a way that makes sense. Do you get uh, do you get a bunch of vegans that argue with you and are like? I do. Yes, they're very vocal. They're a vocal <laughs> minority, thankfully. But um, I'm you know, if you choose to be vegan for ethical reasons, that's not a debate that I choose to to sure. engage in. Um, but I feel very strongly um, that an omnivorous diet is not only ideal, but I think that uh, I think that vegan diets. I don't know. I'm just not not a fan of them. And I will say that my mother, uh, who had horrendous health, um, she was a low. She she never ate meat. Um, she never ate eggs. Um, the only time I ever saw her eat meat was perhaps some lean chicken breast. Um, my mom was always very afraid of developing heart disease, so she was, which ironically she never developed, but she was very uh, tuned into the messaging surrounding you know what constituted a heart healthy diet for right. the fifty years that she. Um, was kind of forming her her ideas about diet Wheaties, and nutrition. Yeah. You want Cheerios, hundred percent. You want lots of corn. Yeah, <laughs> like all lots that. of sugar. Low fat, avoid the sugar. <laughs> avoid the fat. Avoid yeah. the cholesterol. But yeah. you know, pro- hyper all processed. The bu- all the bullshit that we were yeah, told. Hundred percent. And you do such a great job of wailing against that that outdated advice. But mm-hmm. um, but she was a low meat eater, and um, you know, so I I just like. I feel in many ways that she was kind of victimized to that kind of nutritional misinformation. And so for me, I don't have anything personal against uh, your decision to adopt a dietary pattern that may work best for you. But I do feel that it's my duty to report um, what the science says and to kind of, uh, you know, to empower people to think critically about what they may hear from certain doctors that promote these diets um, and cherry pick information to support their worldview, uh, because I don't think that it's I don't think it's accurate. For example, um, I heard recently that there's a documentary being produced about brain health and plant based diets. There's also a bodybuilding diet uh, bodybuilding documentary being produced with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You might have seen the trailer for it, and how it's like all these like real men are embracing vegan diets. It's I mean to me it's propaganda, sure. but um, but for you to talk talk about brain health and to and to turn a blind eye to the power and the and the research that has been performed that includes wild fatty fish, for example, then that's not evidence based. That's quackery, in my opinion. Yeah. But you know, documentary so it's almost religion at that point. It's a religion, yeah. And these films can really, you know, I mean, I'm I'm a filmmaker as well, so I know that um, you know films are made to stir emotion to get you to act, and so that's why you know there's tons of people that have changed their diets that I hear about all the time based on what the health or like forks yeah well, well they said one egg is equal to a pack of cigarettes yeah and you're like yeah why right like what the fuck are you talking about it's because it's like it's just i think it's just very powerful imagery and humans respond to imagery and story it's the same thing as that you know that saying that saturated fat is going to clog your arteries saturated fat does nothing of the sort yeah you know because our arteries don't function like the drain on a sink I was having this debate with somebody and I was in Aspen this past weekend and we were talking about it. The body is, I mean, first of all, how arrogant are we to think that we know how these compounds affect our bodies and, and that our bodies can be simplified and reduced to 
you know, something like a, the drain on a sink. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, we, we learn in stories. And when there's a compelling story, it gets sticky. Yeah. And it sticks into people's ideas. And people think, oh, fat in the arteries. Okay, fat in my food equals fat in my arteries equals clogging it up. I'm going to have all this fat that's like the fat on my stomach. And it's a story that makes sense. Yeah. It's just not true. It's not true. <laughs> it's not a true story. Yeah, not at all. I mean, you can eat carbohydrates that increase the circulating uh, concentration of saturated fats in your blood. So yeah. it's um, it's super tricky and it's uh, complex. It's not simple. You know, nutrition science, science in general, is complicated. And so it's um, I think you know, conveying that nuance is something that's that's really important to me. But at the same time, there are some salient things that I think all people could do that can that are going to seriously help their odds um, and make them feel better in the here and now. So, I mean, you know, eating a nutrient-dense diet, optimizing the way that you sleep. I mean, today, sleep is something that, uh, I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole, but we tend to romanticize being busy, right? It's sort of the Gary Vee mentality, who's, which is great. You know, he's inspiring to many people, but I think sleep is sacred. And just on one night of poor sleep, metabolically, the next day, you're messed up. You can your brain is craving sugar, your inflammation's higher, your, yeah. all kinds of things are happening. Just on one night of of reduced sleep, you are temporarily metabolically obese the next day, to the order that you may as well have gained twenty to thirty pounds just for the next day in terms of your sensitivity to the hormone insulin. Not only that, but we now know that when you're sleeping, your brain is cleansing itself of these proteins that uh, build up over the course of the day and can aggregate and form the plaques and tangles that we associate with Alzheimer's disease to the degree that on one night of poor sleep, levels of amyloid as measured in cerebrospinal fluid increased by 30% and tau protein increased by 50%. So these are the two hallmark sort of proteins associated with the pathologies that are linked to Alzheimer's disease. And so it's, uh, it's literally like one of the most important things that you can do for, for overall brain health, for helping regulate your hunger. You know, I mean, Trying to change your diet is like an exercise in utter futility if you're not optimizing your sleep. Because when you're underslept, you become primal, but like in a bad way, right? Mm -hmm. All you're craving is sugar, fat, junk foods, things like that. I'm so glad I got an 84 on my aura ring score from last night. I'm nice. feeling fucking good. That's, That's a good awesome. one. That's a good one for me. Yeah. <laughs> Some people I know too, they'll bust those. They'll bust, you know, so it's ranked uh, the aura ring is a little bio, uh, biometric device you wear on your, your hand for those of you who don't know. And it gives you a score from zero to a hundred, depending on your sleep score. And there's some people I know that are just rocking ninety sixes like every mm. night. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Now that's a superpower. When people are talking about like, what would you like to be able to do? Fly, <laughs> like see through things, you know, have incredible strength. Like, yeah. Nah, pretty much just sleep really good when I wanted to if I had a superpower. Oh man. That would be it. It's uh yeah, I mean, you know, we're both, I think, pretty lucky. Like, you know, I, personally, I get to sleep many days uh, and I get, I allow myself to wake up naturally. Mm -hmm. You know, if I do need to wake up to an alarm, you know, usually what I'll try to do is I'll try, try to go to bed earlier. Um, but that's become a real sort of, um, you know, an area where I've become very disciplined Yeah, because it's so critical. I mean, especially when you're busy um, and trying to live that Gary V life, you know, I mean, you got to get your sleep, you know, yeah. it's just, the, it's the rising tide that lifts all the boats in your harbor. That's right. Yeah. Well, good shit, man. I'm Dude. glad we got to do this. Yeah, same. And I'm looking forward to having you on on my podcast, The Genius Life, too. Yeah, let's make that happen. And yep. then Genius Life, it's out there. It's on Amazon. Genius Foods is already available. Yep. Ready to go. Yep. And um, and where else? Where else can people find you? 
pretty active on Instagram at Max Lugavir. Uh, post you know new stuff every day. Um, but yeah, I would say grab Genius Foods, pre-order the Genius Life, and that's it. I'm easy to reach, so come say hi. My man, you're the man. Yeah, thank you, Aubrey. Yeah, for sure. See everybody. Peace. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I hope you guys are empowered to take control of your own healthcare destiny, of your own nutritional psychiatry. Definitely check out his book, Genius Foods. Check out my book as well, Own the Day, Own Your Life. There's a lot of crossover between the two. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love you, and we'll see you next week.